If you've been even mildly interested in film or documentary over the past few decades, there's a really good chance that you've encountered um, Sam's work from um, the Eyes and the Prize miniseries to um, so many PBS episodes of American Masters or others, the loving story working on um, Spike Lee's documentaries. As an editor, producer, and director, Sam has covered the waterfront, particularly focusing on films that deal with with music, race, politics, film, um, cultural studies, national topics, um, and they all kind of collide in this really exciting way in this film. Um, It's exciting to see Sam doing more directing projects. Please join me in welcoming Sam Pollard. Thanks so much for coming out and sharing this film with us today. My pleasure, my pleasure. Congrats. The film's opening theatrically later in the year, so it's really special that we were able to show this and have you here. It's kind of the film you were almost working your whole career towards in a lot of ways. We were talking earlier about the episode of The Blues that you worked on, the the series, and... uh, you know, what was the name of the episode in search of... It was uh, a series that was executive produced by Martin Scorsese, and a segment I did was called Feel Like Going Home. Feel Like Going Home. Yeah, right. okay. I was I was thinking it was called Looking for the Blues, yeah, feel like which is a home. phrase that shows yeah. up in this film. Right. And just so much work you've done about music, and then the civil rights era, and major figures in that, and then how everything kind of coalesces in this this whirlwind in this film. Well, well that was one of the things that uh, the producer, Ben Hadeen, and the writer, one of the things that attracted me to the project when he reached out to me initially about three and a half years ago, the fact that it was going to be a story not only about Freedom Summer, which I knew a lot about, but it was also about the search for these two iconic musicians who I also knew a lot about, Sunhouse and Skip James. So... Those two concepts was uh, at first a little challenging. I was a little afraid of trying to make these things work because yeah. it's, it's always difficult to interweave stories, but to try to interweave three elements, you know, two groups, one from the West Coast, one from the East Coast, plus the Freedom Summer guys, folks going down to Mississippi. It was a big challenge, but uh, when I started to embrace it and we all got into working on it, both in the shooting and in the post-production, we worked hard to try to make it come together. Yeah, just watching it a second time, it's so impressive, and it's it's clear your background as an editor, just how efficient this film is. It just gives the information you need to know, articulates it so well, and then moves on, gets out of the way. It's so well-constructed. Well, you know, the thing that's always important to remember about the documentary, um, you know, is that it's a real collaborative process, but the editing is probably the, one of the most important parts of that process, and... David Winsnet, who was the editor and the co-producer, she did a phenomenal job, phenomenal job in understanding when to bring in the music, when to take the music out, when to transition from Freedom Summer segment back to the search by Phil Spiro and Dick Waterman and John Fahey. It was just a very delicate, you know, sort of unfolding. You know, and it always takes a lot of work. I mean, we were in the editing room for about eight and a half to nine months trying to make this thing come to life. One of the the interesting trends happening in documentary right now is all this animation as a tool that's opening up new forms of expression within documentary. Well, you know, it's uh, 
I think that we're all, many of us documentarians are trying to embrace new ways to tell the story. I was um, thinking back to Eyes on the Prize, and one of the things we did with that show, that was a very, very sort of spare unfolding of that story. And Henry would say to us, he didn't want any extra music, he didn't want any sound effects. All he wanted was interviews with people who had been in those situations, and the archival footage, he didn't want a lot of stills or any kind of trickery you know, that would take away from the storytelling. I would say nowadays, we as documentarians, we are still storytellers. We just have new tools that are enabling us to tell our stories in a much more provocative and visually arresting way. You know, and this is my first time working on a documentary with animation, and it really only came about because you know, there was no, no visual material of these guys doing the search. There was no footage, there was no stills, there was nothing. And we either had to go with reenactments, recreations, going down, finding actors, and, and recreating that, that trip, which has been done, which I've done also. But then Deva had remembered liking the animation that had been done in the documentary that won the Academy Award, I guess, four or five years ago, Searching for Sugar Man. And the company that did that, doc, that animation was a company called Apparat that's based in Sweden. So we reached out to them, and we started Skyping with them going back and forth, sending them you know, interview segments that we had assembled so they could start brainstorming. We all started brainstorming about how to visualize it. You know? So it's, it, was a, it was a new, new, new thing for me, but I was excited by it. You know? And I think it turned out pretty well. What do you folks think? Not to spend too much time on that one aspect, but it is kind of interesting to think about too is you know handing over so much freedom for the look of the film your film to somebody else do you get lots of different looks that they could do for those segments and you're working with them to well you know the process is they give us something we look at it we respond they make changes they send it back to us we respond you make changes it's the same process all the way when you're making a film i mean David would assemble something, and Ben and I would go and look at it and say, no, 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 that's not working. Or she would assemble something and say, oh, we think we're close to it. Or she would assemble something that was too long, and we want to shorten it or restructure it. This is that process when you're making films. You, you know, when you, as filmmakers, none of us are, no man is an island is my phrase. We can't make these films by ourselves. And you need collaborators, and you need that give and take between the collaborators to make the film work. And that's what we did with the animators. It was a lot of give and take, a lot of give and take. And one thing, again, on the second viewing, it starts off with a lot of animation for the first half, and then you get to a segment where you don't clearly have the footage of, like Skip James at Newport, and that's like clearly not animated. And the film has this momentum, and just how expertly time kind of stops when you get to that footage of Sunhouse and the audio of Skip James and building to that. And like you had to make this film at this moment to be able to capture these people. They had to go down and search for these people, like the urgency in telling these stories. Yeah, it was important to visualize those guys, to visualize Nick Pearls and Phil Spiro and Dick Waterman, Henry Vestine and John Fahey. But when we got to Newport, and we had went to the archivist. The gentleman who had shot that footage, the actual footage, has his own archive. Someone had told us, and I had remembered, quite honestly, I had worked on another documentary about the blues. And somehow I remembered or I imagined it 
that there was some footage of Skip James performing that, that concert. So we went back to his archive, and he said he thought he had the footage, but somebody had stolen it. Well, I don't remember if they stole the work print or the negative, but it didn't exist anymore. And it was just that little bit of footage that you see in the film when Skip is backstage. You know, very little. It's about, the, at the most, 40 seconds. So the footage that we, that you know, and this is the, the magic of editing, those images that you see of people just sitting there listening to Skip was actually the film footage. We didn't see Skip on the stage, so David had a very smart idea just freezing those frames, freezing those frames to create that haunting flavor because Skip's voice is just so haunting and so powerful, you know. There's another interesting transition that happens at the end when it, you know, you've got this historical moment that kind of reemerges when these figures that those audio recordings are almost spectral figures, Skip James and, and Sunhouse, and then they become in the flesh. And then there's another moment where we're suddenly in the present. So all these temporal things that start appearing, and it's this almost plant and payoff you're doing with the, the contemporary performers doing modern reinterpretations of the songs. I wonder if you could talk about the decision to, to have, you know, new versions. Yeah, one of the things I had said to Ben as we start to plot how this film should unfold and what it, how it should be visually, I said to Ben and to David that, you know, I'd worked on lots of historical docs, Eyes on the Prize, The Rise and Fall, Jim Crow, and I said, I know we can cover that, you know, and I know we're going to be able to deal with this music. We hadn't even figured out the animation concept yet. But I said that to really give it a real theatrical feel so it's just not doesn't feel like just a historical documentary, I think we need to find contemporary performers who can perform, who love, who revere the music of Skip and Son. You know? And Ben, who happens to be more of a blues aficionado than me, he started to come up with this list of names, Valerie June. You know, the North Mississippi All-Stars, Lucinda Williams, you know, um, Chris Thomas King. And so we started to reach out to all of these people, and they all said yes. And so it was, just, it was just a journey of going to New Orleans to do Chris Thomas King, going to New Orleans to do the North Mississippi All-Stars, going to Chicago to do Buddy Guy, flying down to Austin, Texas to do Gary Clark Jr., going to Los Angeles to do Lucinda Williams. Valerie June, luckily, was in Brooklyn. <laughs> so, so we just started traveling. We probably spent about a good two and a half, year and a half to two years shooting, you know, off and on. It wasn't consistent, but we spent about a year and a half to two years shooting all of these things, you know. And it was, you know, it was great to, to, to be able to see these contemporary musicians who love these, these two elders so much. And the first one we shot, the first interview that we did with the first musical performance we did was with Lucinda Williams. That was that journey that documentary filmmakers have to make. You have to get the subjects that trust you. So the night before, Ben and I went out and spent four hours with Lucinda Williams and her husband drinking and drinking and drinking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because she, she liked to drink. Sounds like a really bad gig you have. Yeah, the rough <laughs> gig. But well, we had to shoot the next day, so we're a little hungover. And then the next morning, the next day, we get to our house up in the hills in Los Angeles, and we had to really delicately coax her into performing. We took about two and a half hours with her changing her shirt, changing her guitars, getting her picks, you know, having a couple of beers, 
We had to really gently coax her to do that performance, you know. So it was a pretty, it's a pretty interesting shoot. I mean, some musicians you go in. I remember flying down to Austin, Texas, and we went to a little club where Gary Clark Jr. played, and he came. We set up the lights and the cameras, and about an hour later, he came in. He sat down. He did his interview, and he performed right on. You know, so that's the, you know. I, I've been doing this a long time, and I still love documentary filmmaking. I love every step of the process, from the concept to the shooting to the editing. And I love this, too, having an audience see these films. Speaking of audiences. <laughs> so are there any questions out there for Sam? How did you get started making films? Oh. Was the how, question. Her question is, how did I get started making films? Uh, as I was saying to Chris when we had lunch today, I was uh, a 21-year-old young man going to Baruch College in New York City. I was on the path to become a rich businessman. <laughs> I was majoring in marketing, and I was not happy with as a junior in college. And I went to a counselor one day, and I said I was looking for some after-school activity. And she asked me, what did I like? And I said, I love books. I love to read. I grew up reading books all the time, going to the library, as I was saying to Chris. And I loved old movies. I grew up watching those old Hollywood movies with everybody from Burt Lancaster to Sidney Poitier to Ava Gardner. I loved movies. So she said, the public's television station in New York City, WNET, has a film and television workshop that they started in 1968 after Dr. King's assassination to get more people of color in the editing room, behind the camera, producing, shooting, doing sound. It's a one-year program, she said, two nights a week, six to 10 professionals come in and teach you how to make films. Well, are you interested, Sam? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I like movies, but I don't really care about how they make them. But she was pretty persuasive, and she got me to have an interview. I got accepted to that program. And after one year of making little short films and gravitating toward the editing, I was able to get a job as an apprentice on the film. I think you guys showed it at the Wexner here, right? Gondrin Hess. It's a low-budget feature film, all, pretty much all black crew, except for the editor, who's this gentleman, Jewish gentleman, who took me under his wing and mentored me for three years. His name is Victor Konevsky. And from him, I just fell in love, not only with editing films even more, but fell in love with editing and making documentaries. That's how I started. Welcome. Ganja and Hess is one of the most radical American radical. independent films ever made. I can't imagine that being your introduction. Your first introduction. <laughs> That's quite a ride. This gentleman. Yeah, I recently watched the um, Hollywood Reporter uh, roundtable with the Oscar-nominated documentary filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And Werner Herzog said that he doesn't approach making documentaries as like journalism. He says he approaches it more like a, like a narrative movie director and he's not afraid to ask people who are rambling to like repeat that and leave out all the boring parts and like stage stuff. What's your, what's your opinion about that? Yeah, I think all of us as documentary filmmakers, we, we always confront that kind of situation where you have subjects who don't, don't speak directly to the things you want to hear. But I've learned certain things about interviewing people over the years. When I was a younger first-time producer, I remember being in, in Detroit once interviewing a woman when I was doing Eyes on the Prize, and I was asking her all these questions, and she wasn't giving me the answers I wanted to hear. 
So finally, after about my fourth question, I said, and this is not her name, but I'm just making it up. Ms. Jones, could you say when they constructed the highways in Detroit, they ruined the black community? And she looked at me, the lady was in her 50s, I guess, at the time. She said, Mr. Pollard, please don't put words in my mouth. You know, let me speak my own truth. From that experience, I learned that sometimes when you interview people, when they start to veer off, depending on who it is, sometimes you have to be able to let them veer off and let them talk. And then let them finish up. And then you go back and you ask that question again. And you say, can you... Can you kind of paraphrase that? I'm never going to say, could you stop rambling? I'm trying to be very respectful. I'm trying to be very respectful. So I'll say, can you compress that? Can you, can you give me that in a different way? Sometimes you interview people like, you know, you, you, you understand that some people you interview, you can't stop them. You, can, you got to let them go. So for example, Harry Belafonte is a great example. If you ask Harry Belafonte a question, he's going to give you like a 30-minute answer. You don't really want to tell Harry Belafonte to stop. You'll let him go on, and then you'll try to go back and say, okay, Harry, can you give it to me again? But the other thing to remember, too, as documentary filmmakers, part of our job is to listen to the people that we interview. And if you're a smart interviewer, you always can find things that you know that you can pull out of that interview. That's one of the beautiful things about editing. You can find those moments that you can make work in the editing. You know, you really can. So you just have to learn how to be patient. To me, as a documentary filmmaker and as an interviewer, patience is important. And also listening and paying attention. Because if someone's given me the opportunity to sit down and tell me their story, I should be respectful and want to listen to it. You know, I'm not there to say, well, you got to tell me the story the way I want to hear it. That's not my job, really. My job is to have them open up and give me as much as they can and then I usually know how to figure out how to make it work in the editing process. This gentleman back there. Yeah, I, I was at the Travis City Film Fest last summer, and your film was oh, yeah. at the right. festival. Were you um, in a position to have your documentary tied in with the Academy Awards, for example? Or, or is it when you come out now next year, or this year? Yeah, it'll be this year commercially, because... The, the Academy rules, is it has a play in the East Coast city and the West Coast city. So it only played in New York. So now it's got to play in the West Coast. And then we'll, we'll send it in. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, you know, there's the, uh, the Tribeca Film Festival is going to be happening in about three weeks. And a film that I co-directed with a young man named Ruben Atlas is going to be at the festival. It's about an organization that was very important in America called ACORN. And uh, we have done a documentary about ACORN. And I think it's timely. And I think it's relevant, you know. And uh, I think that it's one of those kind of documentaries that America needs now, you know to see that people of color and working people, you know, really have things that need to be heard and need to be said. 
and Acorn was a very powerful organization before they got taken down by these two young people, Hannah Childs and James O'Keefe. Wonderful film, by the way. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, many artists and filmmakers tend to be very critical of their, their work. Right? Mm -hmm. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be right. As you look at it today, are there things that, if you were to do this again, are there things, would you approach it in a different way? And if so, why and what would it have been today? That's a great question. I never had, that's a really good question. Here's my answer. <laughs> I've been making films as both an editor and a producer and a director for about 40 years, right? And I have a philosophy. I make a film, I try to do the best I can in every film I make. And after I make it, I watch it and I move on. I don't try to second guess myself anymore. You know, I've done documentaries about civil rights. I've done eight feature films for Spike Lee. I don't, I don't second guess myself. My attitude is I did the best I could with this film, you know? Is it 100%? Is it perfect? There's no such thing in life as perfect, man. So I'm not looking for perfection. I'm looking to try to be a good storyteller and try to do it the best way I can do it, with the tools at my, at my command. I don't really second guess myself. I don't... I'm not angst-ridden about, oh my God, I should have did this. Oh, why didn't I do that? I, I, life is too short, and I'm an old man. His life is too short. <laughs> You're welcome. Way in the back, gentlemen with the glasses. You, gentlemen, yes, sir. When you were making this film, how much were you driven by the murder of When, when Ben Hadeen, the producer and the co-writer, approached me, this was his intent. He wanted to tell a story about the search for Sun and Skip at the same time as Freedom Summer was happening. And my first response to Ben was, Ben, it's not going to work. This is too hard. You know, I've done a lot of hard films, but this one is too hard. Forget it. But as I always say, first-time producers, the thing that I always have to tip my hat to in terms of first-time producers is that they are always tenacious. They never take no for an answer because they don't know any better, which is wonderful. They never take no for an answer. And he was like tenacious. This has got to be made. Because he initially wanted to write a book about this, but he decided it would be better as a film. So this concept was the original concept right from the beginning. Now, sometimes as those who might be in film know, sometimes the concept changes when you get in the editing room. But this was the original concept. Now, the pieces in terms of how they go together, that evolved in the editing process. But this was the original approach. Yes?
I think we just see it every all around us now. You got Black Lives Matter. You see so many, you know, ways that people are trying to open up the dialogue. And speaking to the notion of embracing Black culture, I quite, you know, listen. I, I've been around a long time, and I think that as we were driving by to the to the school here today, there was this fraternity house outside, and they were playing some some heavy rap music, and it was all white guys sitting out there. <laughs> It was heavy rap music. So I think, you know, culturally, there's been a real embrace that's been happening for years. Taylor Branch tells you it's happening when he was a kid. You know, I just think that that's happening. I think in terms of racial justice and racial issues, they, in the last four or five years, it's been at the forefront of the dialogue in America. With this new president, it's going to be even more there all the time. It's, it's, it's there. Race in America is always there. It's never going to leave us. You know, you just have to embrace it. The pros and the cons, the good and the bad of it. You just got to embrace it. Uh, this gentleman. So how did you personally, like, discover these musicians? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in 1965, I was listening to 63, 64, 65, listening to Motown, the, the Temptations, the Four Tops. Who did Hello, Stranger? Barbara Lewis. I was listening to all that stuff. And I was listening to, I grew up in Spanish Harlem, so I was listening to Eddie Palmieri and... and um, Larry Harlow. So I listened to a lot of Latin music, and then I got into jazz. I'll be honest with you, man. When I heard this stuff when I was 16, 17, I said, this stuff is ancient. I don't want, I don't want nothing to do with this stuff. This blues stuff, Sunhouse, Skip James, oh, God, no. But like a lot of people, you know, who have sensibility, I mean, those, who are thus, those of us who are sensitive, as I got older, into my 20s and my 30s, I started listening to these guys. First, I was listening to Muddy. Waters, Howlin' Wolf, you know, Robert Johnson, you know. Then my ears said, oh, okay, let me go back and see where they came from. Then I started listening to Charlie Patton. Then I started listening to Sunhouse and Skip James, and my ears opened up. And then I worked on a documentary called, series called American Roots Music, where we really explored the music of Sunhouse and, and Skip and Little Walter. So I had to evolve and grow into it. I didn't like it at all first, man. No, I didn't like it at all. You know, after I got into my early, late teens and early 20s, it was, my blues was Charlie Parker, not these guys. But Charlie Parker comes from these guys. They all, it all has a, you know, there's a tributary that it all comes from. Just gotta, you just got to pay attention to it. This lady again. So thank you for sharing your philosophy. Your character is really a Thank you. What kind of film studio are you trying to make? She's trying to make a film studio. Well, yeah, well, I'm trying to understand what your challenges are. Like, I've talked to a bunch of different people in the industry and understanding what their challenges are so I can build like, a studio that's going to actually help you. Well, the biggest challenge for all documentary filmmakers is 
Steve and Julia know is raising the money. So if you come with a lot of money, we'll come to you. <laughs> That's the biggest challenge. We, all, we have 100 ideas. We have 100 ideas. It's the, it's, it's the way of how do you fund those ideas to make those films. Documentary films can range from $200,000 to $2 million. Yeah, they're, they're small compared to Hollywood films. And we don't, we don't really work in studios. I mean, we will go to places if we, and even nowadays, most of us don't even have to edit in places anymore. We used to go to post-production houses to edit. You know, now most of us have equipment at home. We can edit at home, you know. $20 million would fund a lot of docs. We'll, we'll all you come can, to your house. You could house. just make more, yeah. So I think we need to move on. <laughs> you can ask me some other questions after. Yes. That, listen, someone told me, I teach at NYU, New York University for the last 20 years. But the gentleman who, who mentored me, Victor Konevsky, when I was from 22 up until my 40s, who I still know extremely well, he never said this to me, but this is what I got from him is that I have a responsibility. All this knowledge I got about how to make films, how to edit films, I'm not supposed to keep this to myself. I'm supposed to share this. So when a young filmmaker, I was, in, uh, I was at a panel two weeks ago in, in Washington, D.C. for the National Endowment of Humanities for Emerging Documentary Filmmakers, and I did a whole panel about how you, how you, how you approach editing the historical documentary. At the end of that session, I must have had seven, eight people give me their emails, give me their phone numbers, and I said, feel free to call me. I did a panel in Los Angeles in the fall, and this lady who was at this panel I did, she said she had a documentary about the water crisis in Michigan, right? And she wanted me to work, help her with her film. She said she, at some point she was going to come to New York, and would I sit down with her in the editing room. Now, I never thought she would ever call me. Five months later, I get this call. She says, Sam, I'm coming to New York in two weeks. And I'm thinking, who is this? <laughs> it was that same young lady. She flew all the way to New York. She was living up, she had family upstate. She flew to upstate New York. She got rid of the car. She drove down to New York City. I got the editing room for her at NYU. We spent six hours, four to six hours in the editing room. And I went through a whole film with her and gave her my expertise. Mentoring and passing it on is important because I'm not going to be here a lot longer. I want to pass it on. That lady in the woods. That was the ones one that that's the sequence that grabbed me the most because the, the idea that in 1964 a black man could stand up to these young white guys and confront them and say, I'm a man, you know, give me the, you know, I'm talking to you. That to me was revelatory. And, you know, and, and even probably more revelatory for me because my father is from Mississippi. My uncles are from Mississippi. And I remember as a 24-year-old going down to Mississippi, because all my uncles left Mississippi. They were one of 11 children. Every one of my uncles left. But my three aunts, they all stayed in Mississippi. And one summer, I went to visit my aunt in Mississippi, a little town called Macon. And we went into, I used to go into town by myself. I used to walk right down the middle of town. But one Saturday in 1975, 
my aunt on a Saturday drove into town, and like all the other black people, they went through the back of the, the general store. And I remember saying to my aunt Lily, I said, Aunt Lily, how come you got to go through the back? This is 1975. She had a mindset that you didn't go through the front of the town, down Main Street. You went through the back, you know. So when I, see that, when I saw that sequence, when we put that sequence together, that was the one that moved me the most. The other one that moved me the most, too, is when Phil Spiro, Nick Pearls, and Dick got to Rochester, New York, and Sun, Sun House is sitting on the porch. <laughs> that one got me, too. I think we have time for two more two questions. More. Yeah. No, none of the musicians gave any input. We didn't ask them. <laughs> but yeah, I do play. I, 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 I play saxophone, and I play flute, and I play a little guitar. Yeah. So folks will be able to see this again later. Hopefully we're going to do a limited theatrical starting in May and June around the country, Los Angeles, Midwest, South. Hopefully it'll come out and people will see it and tell all your friends. I really thank you all for coming tonight. Thanks, Sam.